Welcome to Clean Law from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. In this episode, our Executive Director, Joe Goffman, speaks again with Clean Air Task Force Senior Counsel, Jonathan Lewis, about biofuels. They discuss the five lessons policymakers seeking to promote innovation can learn from the failure of the renewable fuel standard, why aviation is a critical transportation market to target for emissions reductions, and the low carbon fuel standards of California and British Columbia. John joined us in August for the first of this two-part series. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We're looking at this program at a time when it's almost as if we've entered a new generation of urgency about Mm -hmm. decarbonizing the economy. And a lot of the policy environment is looking not just at incremental transitional strategies, but pretty drastic technology-forcing strategies. And as most people think about renewable fuel standards program, and I think as you described it previously, it's a pretty classic technology-forcing program. Congress in the mid-aughts in the 2007 legislation identified or posited a need for cellulosic biofuels and essentially gave EPA the remit to create an aggressive demand for it by requiring it and relied on that demand creation to bring cellulosic fuels into uh, existence. So the question is, in your expert capacity, John, how well did it work, if at all? And what are the lessons learned? All experiments are successful if you understand their purpose, to generate and teach lessons. So that's the sort of overarching question. What did we learn 10 plus years after RFS2 was enacted? I think by the metric of all experiments are successful if they produce learning, the RFS has provided a lot of learning. I think there are some clear lessons to be taken from the decade since the RFS was enacted and implemented. Let me step back and say, I use the word experiment, but that's too far of a leap ahead. RFS was not intended to be an experiment. It was intended to be a policy. So let's make sure we sort of set or reset the table. But the first question is, how well, if at all, has it worked as a policy? And then after answering that question, we can answer the question, what are the results of this policy experiment? As a policy... I don't think it's worked very well, but that's because I assess the policy through the lens of how is it doing as a GHG reduction tool. And in that sense, it's doing poorly. And the main reason is because while the program and the environmental benefits of the program were based on an assumption that it would increase the production and use of cellulosic biofuel, we've seen virtually no cellulosic biofuel production. Every commercial venture in the United States so far to try to produce cellulosic biofuel at a scale that's meaningful in the U.S. transportation fuel market has failed. Most of the companies are bankrupt. So what we've been left with instead is essentially a corn ethanol mandate. 90%, almost 90% of the compliance with the RFS mandates since 2010 when the program was implemented have been met through corn ethanol. Which is not a big GHG reduction winner. No, according to EPA, well, according to the statute, 
for corn ethanol to earn RINs, which are the credits by which the RFS is administered, it has to achieve a 20% reduction as compared to gasoline. Mm -hmm. EPA did its life cycle analysis of corn ethanol. They modeled three scenarios. One, their assumption for how corn ethanol would be produced in 2020. Another one for how it would be produced in 2017. And another one for how it would be produced in 2022. And it was the analyses that they did for 2022 in which they assumed things like ethanol biorefiners would be powered by biomass energy as opposed to fossil fuel energy. It was in those model runs that they actually achieved that 20% reduction. The 2022 scenarios indicate that corn ethanol would produce a 21% reduction as compared to gasoline. So they just barely cleared that threshold. Other analyses, other life cycle analyses that look at corn ethanol take different views. I think based on the research that we've looked at over the years, it's probably not better than gasoline. It's hard to pin this down. There's an enormous amount of uncertainty, and that's a big problem with this program. But I think the life cycle emissions from corn ethanol, as it's produced, are roughly the same as gasoline, not significantly better by any stretch. So we've had this, as you said, an experiment, but actually a policy that's reordered a significant sector of the economy with little to no environmental benefit. I would be remiss if I just focused on the greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. Corn ethanol production, corn production is very resource intensive. Lots of water is required to grow the corn. Lots of fertilizer inputs are required to promote that growth. And that leads to a lot of soil degradation, water quality degradation, and and air quality impacts. And so it's not just the greenhouse gas impacts from the use of corn ethanol under the RFS that have been problematic. It's a wider set of of issues, which, you know, are balanced against the wider set of issues that petroleum extraction and refining involve. There's trade-offs there as well, but it's certainly, even in EPA's analysis, they have put out two what they call triennial reports that look at the overall environmental impact of the RFS, they raise a lot of concerns about their own program and its environmental impacts. So the answer to your question is, I don't think this policy is working, at least not from an environmental standpoint. The headline out of your statement was that 90% of compliance has been through corn ethanol. If the program had worked as Congress directed or assumed it would, what would be the percentage at this point of corn ethanol-based fuels versus more advanced biofuels? Well, the program is supposed to increase the use of cellulosic biofuel from essentially zero gallons in 2008 to 16 billion gallons in 2022. The statutory schedule for production and use cellulosic biofuels is so different from the reality Mm -hmm. that I've sort of forgotten what the statutory number is, but I think it should be above 10 billion gallons at this point. Right. Instead, we're a tiny, tiny fraction of that. 10% or less is way underachieving, way, way underachieving. What Congress had in mind when it created that schedule. Yeah, where the actual mandates that EPA enforces for cellulosic biofuel for the last couple of years is about 5% of what the statute requires. Now that we're seeing results that allow us to declare that the policy is not successful, is there a way we can derive some lessons so that at least we rescue the experiment? As you pointed out, we're in a a new era of urgency that the climate crisis that we're facing is clearer than it was in 2008. The politics 
are different, but still very complicated. But there seems to be a new appetite in Congress for at least drafting bills and introducing Mm -hmm. them in some instances, and in some instances passing them. There was a bill that was passed last year, popularly known as 45Q, Mm -hmm. that incentivizes the development and deployment of carbon capture and sequestration systems. And those sort of targeted policies seem to be something that Congress is potentially interested in. So in that context, it's important to think about what lessons we can learn from the RFS, because hopefully we're coming up soon on an opportunity to rethink what our transportation and climate policy should be. So I think there there's probably a lot of lessons from the RFS. And of course, it depends on your perspective. I'm coming at this from someone who's thinking about how to decarbonize the transportation sector. But from my perspective, there are five lessons. The first one is to clarify the goal and design the policy accordingly. The RFS had a set of different goals and was not really well designed to address any of them, as far as I can tell. The second lesson is avoid technology lock-in by pushing innovation before creating a market pull. The third is that the incentives that policymakers create should be durable and they should be highly certain. Investors should know what this policy is going to reward and what it's not going to reward and for how long it's going to offer those rewards. The fourth lesson is that greenhouse gas reduction targets should continuously get more stringent and should be on a trajectory to zero. And then the fifth lesson from the RFS, from my perspective, is that policy should give preference to fuel and energy technologies that deliver reductions with the highest degree of certainty. One of the problems with the RFS has been the reductions that may or may not be delivered by the program have to be modeled. And I think that programs that deliver GHG reductions that can be measured are more valuable and should be treated as such. In terms of the need to clarify the goal of the policy and the need for that policy to be designed to actually achieve those goals, the RFS nominally had three goals to provide support to the agricultural sector, price support in particular, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to promote U.S. energy security. In our last discussion, we talked about how it's fared on those three fronts. The energy security goal has gotten probably the least attention because since the RFS was enacted and implemented, we've had this explosion in shale oil and shale gas. And so the United States is long on energy these days. I'm not really well positioned to describe how it has impacted the farm economy, but I think it's got to be a pretty inefficient way of addressing that concern. Mm -hmm. If we want to support the farm economy, which seems sensible, there's got to be more efficient, better targeted tools than the RFS. As I mentioned on on the third front, it hasn't done a very good job in achieving the environmental goals, particularly the life cycle greenhouse mm-hmm. gas reductions. So if you're designing a policy to reduce transportation emissions, there's a bunch of different goals that you could pursue. And I think the more specific you are, the better chance you'll have of succeeding. And so the RFS, for example, provides credits to biofuels that are used as transportation fuels and then defines transportation mm-hmm. fuels extremely broadly. It's basically everything except ocean-going vessels. A lot of those sectors, a lot of the subsectors of the transportation market have a handful of different options that can be used to decarbonize, particularly light-duty vehicles. We don't need biofuels to decarbonize light-duty vehicle 
segment of the transportation sector. There are other technologies that can do that. So particularly if you're developing a policy that is perhaps biofuel focused and you're trying to figure out what to do with it, probably the best market to focus on is aviation. Aviation, more so than pretty much any other segment of the transportation market, needs highly energy-dense fuels, which makes it difficult to think about how you would decarbonize aviation with batteries or even with hydrogen or ammonia-based fuels. Biofuels are energy-dense, and so to the extent that there are very low and zero-carbon biofuels available to us, they should probably be used for the aviation sector. The question is how much of those low zero carbon biofuels might be available. What we've learned after a couple of decades of experience with biofuels is that the best way to achieve those emission reductions is to use waste-based feedstocks mm. rather than feedstocks that require farmland to be grown. Mm-hmm. We don't know how much that is, how much of that is available to us to make biofuels, but it's not like it's going to overwhelm the aviation industry. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Energy Information Agency projects that the energy demand from the aviation sector in mid-century, in 2050, is eight times larger than the amount of energy that's in the biofuels that are currently produced around the world today. Mm. So it's impossible for me to foresee a scenario in which the biofuel industry can grow eight times without being wildly unsustainable. So I don't think by targeting the biofuel industry at the aviation sector, we're in any way hobbling their room for development. Mm -hmm. So that's a closely targeted policy for researching, developing, and then potentially deploying biofuels into that market to me makes a lot more sense than sort of the very broad-based amorphous lack of targeting that we see with the RFS. Right. Maybe people were highly sensitive to this at the time, but certainly in retrospect, RFS turned out to be a bit of a blunderbuss in the sense that it was inefficiently designed and, as it turned out, uncertainty-plagued mechanism for providing subsidies to the ag sector. It was a big element of so-called energy independence that we were trying to achieve. And in RFS2, there was a greenhouse gas component. I guess you could argue at the time that reflected the coalition that needed to be put together to support it. But it seems every time you introduce an additional, I want to say, exogenous policy objective, you're decreasing the likelihood that any one of the policy objectives in the basket is going to be well achieved or achieved at all. Right. Just looking at how the program has been implemented in, say, the last five years. It seems to be a pretty terrible way to provide ag subsidies because there's so much uncertainty. And EPA is mandated to reshuffle the deck every year in a full-dress rulemaking process that's not necessarily well-suited for speed and uncertainty. I think that's exactly right. And the policy challenge is finding that coalition of support while pursuing the development of a policy that's sort of appropriately targeted. Yeah. That's the reason why I think the aviation sector is a potentially interesting redirection for right, right. for Baffle, because it's huge. It may be big enough so that you don't have to go find not necessarily allied sectors to drag into your coalition. Right. I mean, the reason that I think this is really important to pin down is before you even get to Congress and before you even get to a discussion of 
how you put a coalition together or what a congressional coalition would look like, there's inevitably going to be, in fact, there is a, a lot of study, a lot of discourse about the kinds of policies and the kinds of policy instruments that people should be thinking about before they head to the Capitol. And it seems to me that, again, the technology forcing features of RFS, particularly the advanced biofuels and cellulosic biofuels components, are going to be a magnet for discourse about, well, can you really do technology forcing policies? So I think what you're saying is important. You know, there's a good design in there somewhere. Yeah. That's where the focus should be. And I think that that sort of brings me to the second lesson that I mentioned a second ago. We already discussed this to some extent, which is that you need to make sure that your policy doesn't lock in incumbent fuels Mm -hmm. or incumbent technologies. And the problem with the RFS is that the benefits were largely tied to the development of cellulosic biofuels. That hasn't happened. And so we've been left with biofuels that pre-existed the RFS, essentially corn ethanol. It's being produced in ways that are more efficient than they were in the early 2000s. But it's essentially the same fuel with the same meager benefits and the same problems. And the way that I think you avoid those types of problems, whether it's in the biofuels context or some other alternative fuel development effort, is to sequence your policy making and your policy implementation so that the first thing you focus on is innovation. You sort of look at the landscape and you say, what are we missing? How are we going to achieve our carefully targeted goal? And then put your initial resources and focus into filling that gap. And in some respects, the RFS did that. They understood that to really get emission reductions, we were going to have to depend on a better type of biofuel, cellulosic biofuels. But they didn't create much of a mechanism to promote what was then sort of a non-existent technology. Mm -hmm. The program essentially depends on market pull, which has proven Mm -hmm. to be insufficient. And so what I think you need is a federally funded RD&D effort to push those fuels Mm -hmm. into reality. And there's a handful of different mechanisms you can use to do that. But essentially, you're paying technology developers to build the technology and then demonstrate that it can be deployed in relevant commercial settings. Once that's done, then your market pull policies like the RFS Mm -hmm. make sense because there's something to pull from. There's a roster of technologies that can achieve the goals that the broader decarbonization technologies are focused on. Let's pause there because there's a cheap irony. If you think back to what was going on on the Hill around climate policy in the mid-2000s, you did have CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions limitation bills of the McCain-Lieberman and then Lieberman-Warner ilk. In fact, Lieberman-Warner came to the floor in 2007 for what amounted to three or four days of debate plus a test vote the same year that ISA was passed. The dodge, if I can put it like that, that the Senate was always in love with was the supply side, technology push. Regulation, putting a limit on CO2 emissions, is a species of demand pull, and Congress was just politically allergic to it. So folks were always running forward saying, no, let's just put more money on the supply push. So it's ironic that when Congress actually enacted something, it cast itself against type 
by putting in a mandate that fell into the demand pull mm-hmm. category. So the question I have about ISA 2007 is, were there supply-side titles? Were there technology subsidization titles? Or was it all kind of um, different forms of, if we demanded, it shall be invented type approaches? That's an expansive piece of legislation. Yeah, I'm not really familiar with nearly all of it. I don't know of any elements of the bill, of the law, that were pushing the development right. of biofuels. So basically, we'll define the goal line, and we'll leave it to the private sector and other incidentally implicated components of the public sector to figure it out. Right. It understandably may have felt sufficient at the time, mm-hmm. Because it was such a big engine that they mm-hmm. were turning on. I mean, mm-hmm. there were yeah. over 16 billion gallons of this stuff right. within 14 years. Yeah, um, yeah. It was a huge magnet. Yeah. There just didn't happen to be enough metal in the landscape. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yep. That was the shortcoming. My view and, and the Cleaner Task Force view that the demand type, the pull type policies are easier to enact when policymakers are comfortable that there's actually a pathway yes. to meeting that demand. And so that's why we think those push technologies need to be sequenced yeah. beforehand. I guess as a sort of Clean Air Act lawyer, I would say Congress kind of figured that out because it said to the EPA, you got to periodically set these technology-based standards. And if you will, create a demand for them by requiring sources to put them on. But the technologies that you base the standards on actually have to be adequately demonstrated Mm -hmm. to to work. Mm -hmm. So Congress knew that it needed that kind of ambidextrous policy architecture that you had to simultaneously create the demand that was reasonably well aligned with a level of confidence that the technology was there to meet the demand. Yeah. And- Apparently, the authors of ISA 2007 forgot what the authors of the Cleaner Act amendments of 1990 apparently knew. Right, right. Ideally, policymakers would and will get around to actually legislating seriously about these issues. Ideally, from my perspective, you would do both at the same time. You would Mm -hmm. say, we're going to invest heavily in research development and deployment of highly innovative technologies. Uh, And the reason we're doing that is because five years from now, we're going to have an LCFS or some other other pole type Mm -hmm, technology mm -hmm. take effect. Mm -hmm. But you don't want it to take effect before you have the options that can actually get you on that trajectory down to zero. So I I think signaling both at the same time probably makes sense, but there needs to be some staging. I think that's an important lesson because, again, from my own narrow frame of reference, you know, when you have technology-based standard requirements in a statute like the Clean Air Act, the legislature gives the executive branch of government the job to actually discern that harmonization before it can create the demand. And in retrospect, it's both totally understandable why Congress would have just attended to the demand side. On the other hand, given how much policymaking We'd already been doing this area generally for, you know, at least an entire generation. It's also at the same time surprising that Congress forgot to do that. Right. Anyway, next lesson, Professor. Well, yeah. (laughs) 
it flows from the conversation we were just having because one of the flaws, perhaps, of the RFS is that despite creating this giant wheel of demand for cellulosic biofuels, Congress also built some relief valves into the program in case the production of those cellulosic biofuels were to become too expensive, these cost containment measures, which is a really sensible thing to do in general. However, there are critics of the RFS who believe that those cost containment measures are too easily triggered Mm -hmm. and that it allowed the regulated entities to opt out of the system at a very small price. And so the lesson from the RFS is that policy durability and policy certainty is incredibly important Mm -hmm. because what we're talking about here is incentivizing the development of technologies that have a lot of technological risk. If Mm -hmm. they weren't risky, we wouldn't need policies Mm -hmm. to promote them. And the way you're going to get investment into that sort of product and that sort of technology is for essentially the public to help partially de-risk those investments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to do that, the investors, the people who are moving that capital, need to know that they're not going to have the rug pulled out on them when they haven't yet paid off this massive alternative fuel refinery that they've built. And so... The problem, so to speak, with the RFS was twofold. One, there were these relief valves, essentially, these cost containment measures with respect to cellulosic biofuel, which were perhaps too easily triggered. The other is that the program was enacted in late 2007, implemented in 2010, and it creates this schedule of annual compliance volumes. That schedule only runs to 2022. In 2022, EPA is assigned with responsibility for the program, which means that essentially the president can decide what's going to happen mm-hmm. at that point. And for a lot of investors, that was a risk that they couldn't manage. The possibility that they would invest in something as complicated as cellulosic biofuel production and depend on a program to create a market for it if in 2022 that market could be ended. So that's been a big deterrent to investors putting the kind of capital that's probably needed to really figure out whether, how much, and what types of cellulosic biofuels we can produce. You know, I don't think this methodology could ever be brought into existence, but you can imagine one where if you're designing a program that has sunset features and safety valve features, And you reach a point where there are so many of them that the very de-risking that you're trying to achieve actually introduces other forms of uncertainty that just reshuffle the risk, notwithstanding the fact that in some cases you're reallocating it to the public. If you have too many of those, it's like a tell that maybe overweighted the technology forcing or demand side part of the equation. You know, there's probably a sweet spot where kind of middle range of safety valves and flexibilities and let's say overall program expense guardrails is the just right, is the sort of Goldilocks amount. 2022 is kind of like a latent sunset horizon that just a few years into the program comes before the investors analytic horizon. If you stick something like that in a program, you're telling yourself that maybe there's a flaw in the core design. Right. Or if every single year, some third-party decision maker has to revisit 
whether the nominal requirements can actually be implemented. If you have a profusion of safety valves, maybe you have to go back to the drawing board and mm-hmm. you know look at the core program. Yeah, exactly. It suggests that you're sort of grasping in the night. For, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, is, it sort of pop- takes us back to the other lesson you, you identified, which is as difficult as it is at the point of inception, the harmonization of the supply side and the demand side right. it really has to be attended to, right. even if it takes more work and longer to get the program enacted. The fourth lesson from the RFS is, I think, that your policy needs to pursue continuously deepening reduction targets. Mm-hmm. The RFS sets three reduction levels for different types of biofuels. Conventional biofuels like corn ethanol need to achieve a 20% reduction as compared to petroleum fuels. Advanced biofuels and biomass-based diesel need to achieve a 50% reduction. Cellulosic biofuels need to achieve a 60% reduction. The problem is that in the RFS, those reduction targets are static. A cellulosic biofuel facility that makes fuel that achieves a 61% reduction as compared to gasoline is going to get a credit for each gallon of cellulosic biofuel it produces for as long as it can produce cellulosic biofuel and as long as the program is in place. Mm-hmm. There's no incentive under the RFS structure for it to increase mm-hmm. the reduction to 71% or 81% or 91%. The low carbon fuel standard, which is the model that's used in California and British Columbia and is being looked at elsewhere and perhaps as a national model, works differently. Each fuel type is analyzed and given a carbon intensity score. So it's a measure of the amount of CO2 emissions associated with given amount of energy delivered by that fuel or that technology. And the program requires the overall carbon intensity of California's transportation fuel to decrease over time. So that creates two incentives for innovation. First, If you are producing a fuel that has a carbon intensity of 25, say, and your competitor is producing a fuel that has a carbon intensity that's twice as high, of Mm -hmm. 50, and everything else is equal, you're going to outcompete your competitor Mm -hmm. because the regulated entities can get further down the compliance path using your fuel than they can Mm -hmm. using your Mm -hmm. competitor's fuel. The other feature of the LCFS that encourages innovation is that each year, the carbon intensity reduction is more significant. And so you can't stand still because eventually you're going to become obsolete. And that's important that we don't, it's an important way to avoid the lock-in that we discussed earlier. Fuels that provide marginal benefits in the early years will not be able to be used as a mm-hmm. compliance option in the later years of the program, provided that the regulator is committed Mm-hmm. to really pursuing that trajectory. And California has struggled with that a little bit. But that's not the case with the RFS. If you're producing corn, you're continuing to get credits, right, right. even though you're nominally achieving a 21% reduction. The corn industry claims that the life cycle emissions associated with the corn ethanol that's being produced now are, are considerably better than they were several years ago. There's a lot of debate about that point. Yeah. But what's interesting is that a lot of To the extent that those improvements are happening, they are often happening at facilities that are targeting the California market. Right. Because they're actually getting paid for those improvements in California, whereas the RFS doesn't care, so to speak. Right. That seems like a really important point. 
what's the old expression? Luck is the residue of design, but really only if you have a really good design. Right. So the last lesson is... The last lesson is that we should be rewarding fuels and technologies that deliver actual greenhouse gas reductions with a high degree of certainty, as opposed to fuels that we think might be providing us with greenhouse gas reductions, but our sense of whether or not they are is based on highly complex modeling Mm -hmm. with a high degree of uncertainty. And so I think a program that encourages the use of low carbon fuels and allows biofuels in particular to serve as a compliance option need to discount the compliance options that have high uncertainty because a lot of that uncertainty is never going to be resolved. So we're going to have to live with it. And so my recommendation to policymakers would be, let's focus on the technologies that deliver us reductions that we can actually make that we don't have to wonder about. It's not an either or situation with biofuels. Mm -hmm. Some biofuels provide reductions with a reasonable degree of certainty. Some don't. And the ones that don't are typically the ones that are grown on farmland. And the reason there is because they're grown on farmland. They displace food production. That affects the international food market. And we're not quite sure how the food market responds. We have models to suggest how it responds. But again, that's where the uncertainty comes in. And if it responds by increasing yields, the resulting land use change emissions are going to be reasonably small. If it responds by increasing the amount of land that's brought into agriculture at the expense of natural ecosystems like forests, the emissions are going to be very high. And there's just a lot of assumptions that go into the answers that life cycle models produce with respect to that question. And we're never going to know. I suspect this isn't the first time this has been said, but models are informative, but they can't be determinative. And the designers of this program cast models into the determinative role, as opposed to what you want in the determinative role is measurement, reliable measurement. And if you don't have that, what you may be realizing without acknowledging it is you don't know enough yet. Yeah. And that's particularly the case with conventional farm-grown biofuels, where we're not really sure what the sign is. You yeah, know, we yeah. might be chalking it up as yep. a reduction, but it might actually be increasing the mm-hmm. amount of GHG that we're putting into the atmosphere. And that's not a risk that we should be willfully taking with policy. You said something that earlier that I think put the finger on it, which is the sense of urgency 10 or 12 years ago about decarbonizing various sectors of the economy and various segments just wasn't quite there. And so Congress members who wanted to do something about it had to really cobble together a fairly disparate coalition, put a lot of bet hedging in, and also do some betting on the come as well, which may have made sense at the time. But now that we've had the benefit of 10, 15 years of what this looks like in practice, it sounds like at the very least, going back to the beginning of this discussion, there's some pretty good lessons here that now when we get to the point of doing 21st century carbon policy, these lessons can be applied yeah, with a greater degree of discipline than could have been done 10 or 15 years. I think so. I certainly hope so. So congratulations to the Congress that enacted ISA 2007 for teaching us all sorts of wonderful, valuable lessons. Um, We're grateful. Now now it's on us to make sure that we apply them. Right. Well, John, it's really been great to talk to you not once but twice about this program because in some ways it was viewed as an extremely important one when it was enacted. The federal government through, at this point, 
two, maybe you could argue three administrations has really invested a lot in implementing it. And even if there's no consensus about whether it succeeded from a policy point of view, although it doesn't look like it really did if you're thinking about greenhouse gas emissions, it certainly seems to have generated a lot of learning. And thank you so much for laying it all out for us. Yeah. Well, if it doesn't kill us, it'll make us stronger. And I really appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion. Thanks. Thanks. 